Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Refresh the summer vibes with Tic Tac and you could win a Lollapalooza VIP experience in Chicago. Visit TicTacSummer.com for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Open to legal residents of 50 U.S. states and D.C. 18 plus. Ends June 30th, 2024. Void in PR and where prohibited. See TicTacSummer.com for rules and free entry without UPC. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with a very, very special guest today. Uh, I am lucky enough to be talking to John Lucky Luckadoo, who was a B-17 Flying Fortress pilot in the Second World War, but at a crucial moment in the Second World War, in that back end of 1943. And he was flying with the 100th Bomb Group, flying out of Fort Abbots. And the 100th Bomb Group is one of the most celebrated of all the, the bomb groups, I suppose. And Lucky, thank you so much for coming on. What, what, a, what a privilege. What an honor. Well, it's my honor, Jim, to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, we're absolutely thrilled about it. And, and Lucky, just before we, we, we get to joining the 100th Bomb Group and everything, I'd be really interested to know about where you were born and brought up. I mean, I mean, how did what was your journey before you actually joined the, the United States Army Air Force? I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee mm-hmm. and grew up on what was known as Missionary Ridge. Right. Missionary Ridge was a very famous battle during the Civil War uh, in 1864, mm-hmm. and I grew up amongst all of that memorabilia and history and legend of the Civil War. Of course, went to school locally um, in in Chattanooga, and mm-hmm. um, my best friend and I, when we graduated from high school, discovered that uh, the war in Europe was really becoming so prolific that we were U.S. was bound to be involved eventually. Sure. And so we determined that since we both wanted to fly, that the best thing we could do would be to go to Canada and join the Royal Canadian Air Force and get our training. And then once America became involved, we could transfer to what was then known as the United States Army Air Corps. 
Yeah. Uh, we'd be in rank and we would be already trained and we'd be a step ahead of our buddies. But that required parental consent because we were <laughs> underage. Yeah. So how old So how old were you in, you know, when the war broke out in Europe in 1939? 18. So what, what was it your, your father did? What, what was his background? Well, my father was a stockbroker. Huh. Uh, an independent stockbroker. And in those days in America, you could have an independent status uh, and not be a member of the uh, New York Stock Exchange, but you needed to have a connection with someone who was. Right. And so he had his own independent company and um, our entire assets were represented in stocks and Got of it. course that was prior to the catastrophic crash in 1929 yeah when the stock market went south and yes uh, um, everybody was terribly uh, uh, chagrined to find that their stocks were worthless so what did that mean for your father well it was very devastating he at that time was <clears throat> riding rather high. He um, <clears throat> loved horses, and he had a stable of uh, about five uh, Arabian show horses, five gated show horses that uh, he was very proud of. Right. Uh, we were one of the fortunate families uh, who actually had two cars. Uh, wow. My mother had her own automobile, which was not exactly uh, normal uh, right. among families in those days. Two older siblings were in private schools. Uh, right. And so we were probably uh, known as upper middle class. Yeah, uh, reasonably well Financially to do. Uh, at mm -hmm. that stage. But then, of course, overnight, everything changed. Yeah. My dad had to sell his horses and his stables and, and uh, clawed his way back, though, after uh, the crash and um, eventually uh, did redeem himself uh, financially. But it was a pretty, a pretty difficult time and uh, a qu quite a contrast to what we had enjoyed mm. uh, as uh, in, in our uh, younger years. And Lucky, you, you mentioned about living on Missionary Ridge. Did you ever meet anyone who had, had fought in the Civil War? Because it's a bit like me talking to you now. You know, it's, it's, it's by the 1930s, anyone, the youngest people who had fought in the Civil War would have been in their, their 90s, I suppose. I just wondered whether you ever met anyone. I don't recall that I did. Uh, I know that my elementary uh, school was right across the street from this enormous memorial park that was on the top of the ridge uh, where are, there were all of these larger than life-size statues of Civil War heroes. Mm -hmm. There were stacked cannonballs. There were cannons, huge tablets that explained the battle. Yep. And right on the crest of the ridge stood a five-story steel observation tower which was where General Bragg uh, had the opportunity to really examine all of the uh, terrain. I don't know whether you recall, but historically, Missionary Ridge was a disastrous 
loss to the Confederate forces because yep. uh, Ulysses Grant uh, had over had assembled over eighty thousand troops yep. uh, in in Chattanooga and uh, surged up the the mount the hill and uh, and drove uh, Bragg off. So it was a uh, an ignominious <laughs> defeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I remember the fog rolling in over the over the ridge. Tennessee Valley was almost always shrouded in fog and clouds, mm-hmm. and so um, it was a rather depressing environment that I grew up in. And I thought, boy, if I ever get out of here, I'm never coming back. Did you and, really? And lo and behold, what do I do? Uh, I end up flying uh, out of England where the weather was equal to or worse uh, and particularly to fly in. Yes. <laughs> so you get you escape one fog shrouded valley for a country and continent that's permanently shrouded in frogs and fog. Pretty ironic, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so you and your what was your best friend's name? My best friend's name was Leroy Sullivan. We called him Sully. Sully and <laughs> Sully was the only child of a World War One veteran who had must been mustard gassed and wow. died a horrible death just as, uh, as Sully was being born. Right. So he never really knew his father. How did you eventually join up? Did you join the Royal Canadian Air Force? Well, we went to our parents. Uh, Sully and I went to his mother and explained what we wanted to do. And she listened very carefully and she said, well, Sully, if you really... Uh, feel that this is something that you must do, then you have my blessing. And I naturally thought, well, if Mrs. Sullivan, who only has one child and is willing to allow him to go fight for the king in, in, in England, that, um, that I would not have any difficulty with my parents. But it turned out differently because my mother was impressed with Mrs. Sullivan's sacrifice and she said she wouldn't stand in my way. But my father took a very dim view of it and called us both idiots that we were sticking our nose into somebody else's uh, conflict and that I should get back in school. So he refused to give his, his consent. But Sully's mother did. And he went to Canada and trained on Spitfires and went through the entire North African campaign and um, eventually ended up being posted back in England. And meanwhile, of course, Pearl Harbor occurred and then there wasn't any question as to my service. And so I then joined the uh, Army Air Corps as an aviation cadet and went through my training uh, here in the States. Uh, Just to go back to Sully briefly, what an amazing act of sacrifice by his mother i mean that that's extraordinary isn't it it is indeed wow what a woman i mean that, that that's that's an incredible thing because she must have been absolutely heartbroken i'm sure well he was he was a uh, a very popular guy handsome as he could be 
Yeah. Uh, he was president of his class in high school. We had a, an ROTC unit, and he was the uh, cadet colonel right. uh, in charge of the regiment. And uh, I was under him as one of the two battalion commanders right. uh, in our ROTC unit. So we had a little taste of uh, of the military, even uh, in our schooling. Well, and and that's that's actually quite helpful, isn't it? It was. Uh, in addition to that, because of my dad's uh, uh, activities with uh, with horses, there was a um, cavalry post hmm. just twelve miles from Chattanooga called Fort Oglethorpe, where right. the Third Cavalry was located. And we, as townies, were invited to uh, <clears throat> join their social activities. They uh, fox hunted on the weekends, and they had horse shows. And and uh, my dad's uh, horses were invited to participate in that. And we have many uh, trophies that uh, that his horses were awarded as a consequence. Uh, and in the summer, they had a civilian military training camp, a CMTC, right. at Fort Oglethorpe. And I participated in that for two weeks huh. uh, for a couple of summers. So I was um, uh, quite familiar with the the cavalry, uh, even aspired uh, in my youth to perhaps one day going to West Point and making the military a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, uh, the war intervened and and that uh, went by the boards. But um, uh, I did have a pseudo military background as a consequence of those activities. But when you when you and Sully originally thought about joining the RCAF, was that was it because you'd harbored a, a childhood love of flying or was it because that was the only realistic option of getting into the fighting early? I think we had kind of uh, stars in our eyes, Jim. We we were not <laughs> terribly smart about it. Uh, we we did realize that uh, the war w- that the world was changing because yep. of uh, the Nazi occupation of all of Europe and its threatening uh, invasion of the British Isles. Things were heating up in the Pacific uh, as far as war clouds were concerned. And so we were coming more uh, and more aware that we were prime candidates because of our age right. uh, to to being called into military service. And I guess um, we we were not um, terribly smart about it, but uh, we thought we were. At that age and stage in life, you, you think you're smarter than anybody else anyway. So it, it was not perhaps unusual for us to take that attitude or viewpoint. Right. We're terribly naive. We were gullible. Uh, and as I look back on my military service now and the way things transpired, uh, I realize how innocent we were. So when you did eventually join up, was it was it straight in? And, and, and what was your route to finding yourself in England? After Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. uh, nearly everybody in my fraternity, I was then in the university in my sophomore year, I was studying chemical engineering, 
Wow. And the only reason I was is because I had an older brother who had uh, graduated as a chemical engineer and was then employed by uh, a large chemical company in the East. And I thought, well, he could give me a job when I graduated, so I didn't have any other aspirations. And uh, (laughs) I was no good at chemistry or engineering, and I was uh, not succeeding, really, as a student uh, in college. So my, uh, my mind and my heart and attention were more directed toward my military service, uh, which eventually, of course, uh, uh, I, I joined and uh, ended up going through the cadet program to uh, obtain my pilot's license uh, with the Army Air Corps. So can you remember when it was you were actually, um, when you actually joined up? Yes, I joined up in 1942, uh, right after Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor occurred in December of 41, as you know. Yep. And um, so in January of 42, uh, along with my fraternity brothers uh, who, who qualified, uh, we joined up and, and uh, uh, certainly uh, it was a patriotic thing to do. I don't know that uh, many people today appreciate how unified the country suddenly became when we were attacked at Pearl Harbor. Right. It seems that the country was almost galvanized into action and and service to support the troops and, and to do whatever was necessary to assist Britain in uh, defending itself against uh, the Nazi surge. Mm-hmm. And we also, of course, were... Uh, retaliating from uh, the attack in Pearl Harbor uh, on the Pacific side. So America suddenly found itself uh, on uh, fighting on two fronts. Uh, And all of you were of very much the same mind, were you, that this was something you just had to do? But but presumably there was a bit of, was was there some youthful excitement as well? Or, or, or was it really just a sense of this is a this is an evil that needs to be stopped? It was more or less a patriotic thing to do. Everyone was putting their shoulder to the wheel. Mm-hmm. People were coming out of their homes and going into the factories, particularly the women. And it uh, ended up being the emancipation of women in America. So... Um, it was uh, a new day. It was something that uh, all the way from grandchildren to grandparents, people were doing what they could in a patriotic fashion to mm-hmm. support those who were in uniform. And so you joined up in early 1942. And I think I'm right in saying you were sent to, to Shaw Field in, in Sumter in South Carolina, is that right? No, originally I was sent to Montgomery, Alabama to ah, yes, yes, yes. to uh, pre-flight. Right. I've actually uh, been there. And where have you ever okay. <laughs> I've actually been to Montgomery, yeah. Well, Amazing. Uh, that's where I was um, uh, I joined 4000 cadets. Amazing. And uh, was nominated as the uh, cadet adjutant who was second in command of the cadet corps mm-hmm. uh, and primarily because i could stand in the middle of the parade ground and scream 
pass in review <laughs> and be heard. <laughs> so, uh, but that did uh, stand me in good stead as I went through my training because as a consequence, I was captain of each of class uh, uh, that I passed through, both mm-hmm. pre-flight, primary, basic. Uh, I went first to um, Avon Park, Florida, for my primary training and was captain of my uh, flying school class there. From there, I graduated to basic training in Sumter, South Carolina. Oh, that was when you were there. um, Was captain of the class there and then ended up in Valdosta, Georgia, where I eventually graduated from twin engine flight school uh, and got my wings and my commission in right. uh, February of 1943. Amazing. And we, it, it, had you wanted to follow Sully and be a fighter pilot or, or were you okay with with twin engines? At that time, you were asked uh, what aircraft you'd like to fly. And of course, that was sure to be the one that you weren't assigned to. Um <laughs> But um, strangely enough, something happened to the uh, in the 100th bomb group, which was a B-17 outfit, then located in Kearney, Nebraska, that had been through all of their pre-flight, pre-combat training. It was suddenly decided by someone, and nobody has ever explained this or the reason for it, decided that they would remove all the co-pilots from the crews and replaced them with 40 of us from my flying school class Hmm. who had never been in a B-17. Right. And so we were suddenly thrust into the right seat, uh, second in command of the crew, and with no training and no familiarity with four-engine airplanes at all. And this didn't happen in any other group uh, in the Air Force or the Air Corps. And why in the world it happened to the to the hundred, uh, nobody's ever explained. How extraordinary! But it was certainly unfair because it was unfair to the individuals. It was unfair to the crews. Yep. It was unfair to the uh, to the war effort. Yeah. Because it weakened the crews due to the fact that uh, you had. Uh, one member of each crew that uh, had no familiarity with the aircraft. Right. And so you were posted to Nebraska to join the 100th Bomb Group there? That's correct, initially. And how long did you have there getting used to your new crew and new environment before you were shipped overseas? Well, we were immediately sent to Walla Walla, Washington Mm -hmm. for um, some training of uh, other crews that were going overseas and here we had no training ourselves, but we were in an instructor position. I mean, that's <laughs> and we crazy. stayed there for two or three weeks, and then we were sent back to Kearney and uh, shipped overseas. Wow. Flew our airplanes. They were, we were issued new aircraft with modifications that enabled it to fly across the North Atlantic nonstop and um, really so you didn't go to to war you're going to be killed anyway so you might as well go to war so you didn't stage in Greenland and Iceland or anything like that just straight across unfortunately we didn't we had to learn on the job that's amazing, isn't it? And how were you? I mean, I know it's a. I appreciate it's a long time ago, and and you were a very very young man then. 
was there a sense of bewilderment or or excitement or dread or all of the above? I mean, were you disappointed to be sent to B-17s or were you quite, um, were you sort of okay with it? I think the best description of my um, reaction was befuddled. Yeah. (laughs) I, I couldn't understand it and neither could all of my classmates. As you may well imagine, there were varying degrees of acceptance yeah. among the crews of these newly minted pilots yep. taking the second-in-command position in the, on the crew because uh, it had never been done before. And we, we really um, were hard-pressed to run to catch up and, and to learn, and therefore... Our only instruction was from our pilot. Pilots rather jealously guarded their ability to land and take off and fly formation and do the things that they wanted to do. So some crews accepted it as inevitable and just went on. The crew I was assigned to resented it um, really uh, very vociferously, particularly the navigator and the bombardier who had previously been very close to their co-pilot mm. and uh, loved him. They, they buddied with him. They hung out with him, drank with him. And uh, when he was removed, they were just uh, crestfallen and proceeded to take it out on me. It wasn't my fault, but <laughs> nevertheless, yeah. I was the butt, the butt of their uh, juvenile <coughs> actions they short sheeted my bed and they would give me false rumors about where i was needed or what i was supposed to do and uh, did everything to make my life hell God, it must have been so difficult so i wasn't i wasn't uh, clasped into their uh, <laughs> affection by any stretch and uh, it was a rather strange estranged relationship my pilot was not a good leader. He did not take any position uh, as to what they were doing. He was fully aware of um, their uh, resistance, but he didn't condemn it or condone it. And uh, as a consequence, uh, I was just sort of twisting in the wind. So it was up to me to make the most of a very bad situation. I mean, I've, I'm looking at a photo of you, Lucky, when you were, you must have only been 19 or 20 years old. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, you look about 15 in this picture. <laughs> I mean, you're a very, very young looking young man. You know, it's a, it's a reminder, if anyone needs a reminder, that, that you guys being sent off to fight, you know, fly and operate these huge beasts and take them on bombing missions over Germany, etc., were all very, very young men at the time. Exactly. You know, you're boys, really. And it's amazing we were so young and innocent and gullible. Um, as I look back on it now, Jim, I realize that uh, it, was, it was just extremely lucky and fortunate that I survived because uh, all of the odds were against me uh, mm-hmm. and us. But particularly against uh, those of us who had been thrust into this uh, unhappy situation, 
uh, without um, uh, any recourse. We were guinea pigs. Uh, someone was experimenting with us as far as their strategy and their application of the bomber force uh, and how it could be used in Europe uh, most effectively. And little did we know as crewmen that uh, once we got to England, uh, Sir Arthur Harris made it known in no uncertain terms that he was adamantly opposed to our going out in broad daylight in mass formation and bombing. And he did everything in his power to convince General Ira Aker, the head of the 8th Air Force then, to abandon daylight bombing and join the British in only nighttime bombing. Sure. And that was, uh, of course, uh, as we all know, uh, an ongoing debate yeah. Throughout the war, it never changed. Yeah. So how did you how did you resolve the situation with this crew that you'd been thrust into? It sort of re re resolved itself due to the the fact that when we got to Newfoundland, which was our last stop before we made the big jump across the North Atlantic, uh, we had to await a favorable tailwind because it was such a long flight, we couldn't make it without uh, a tailwind. Goodness and uh, as such, while we were, the whole group uh, was there waiting for the winds to be favorable. The pilot, I was on my crew, took it upon himself. He was married, he had a son, but he took it upon himself one night to go across the field and shacked up with a, uh, a British WAF and ended up in the hospital with a raging case of BD. And so while the rest of the group finally uh, proceeded uh, to go to England, or to go to Scotland, which was our first stop, we had to sit there as a crew for two weeks waiting for him to be recovered. And of course, in those days, the only thing they had for treatment was sulfur. And he was back, uh, he was bedridden for two weeks and uh, overdosed with sulfur. So when he was finally released, uh, he was so weak he couldn't stand. And we had to literally load him into the cockpit. And so I called these two guys, the navigator and the bombardier, aside, and I said, now look, you SOBs, you've made my life sheer hell but you've got to depend on me to get us to combat. Well, that sort of leveled the playing field because... God, good for you. Uh, that it was, it was uh, a stark reality that they couldn't go anywhere uh, without relying upon me and, and what little I had learned about uh, uh, running the airplane, much less yeah. running the crew. Wow. I mean, that must have been quite a moment, but but they listened and obviously you you did get them there. So you sort of proved yourself. Did you did you find yourself slowly but surely winning them over? Well, I told the the, uh, the, the head knocker, the one that was re really the most antagonistic, the navigator. I said, Tim, you've got to hit the landfall in Scotland on the nose or I am personally going to throw your ass out of the airplane without a parachute. <laughs> 
Fantastic. I suppose you've got to you've got to speak their language, haven't you? I mean, you've got to, you've got to show who's boss. Well, uh, I, I had to mature pretty rapidly, Jim. I tell you. Yeah, and, um, I should say so. I, I, I had to be, um, you know, call on forces that I didn't know I was capable of. Gosh, what a what an introduction. I mean, it, it's extraordinary lucky. But you got there. I mean, you must have taken off from, from Newfoundland. With The heart must have been pumping a bit, wasn't it? It was indeed, because we were so heavily loaded, or overloaded, actually, when we took off from New- Newfoundland, finally, uh, the end of the runway was a sheer drop of 100 feet to the, to the ocean. Goodness and me. as we took off, we sunk down to just over the whitecaps. Oh, my goodness And me. I thought we were going to ditch because I didn't think the plane was going to be able to uh, carry the load. But we managed to fly along for... Uh, an hour, an hour and a half to burn off uh, slightly enough fuel to lighten our load and eventually start step up to a decent height where we would get uh, our engines would operate efficiently and uh, would be out of danger of uh, uh, crashing into the sea. So you that was a 12 and a half hour flight <laughs> to Scotland. Well, I, I suppose at the end of that, you're going to know a little bit more about the plane than when you started. <laughs> Learned quickly. <laughs> yes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, can you remember the sense of relief at touching down in Greenock or wherever it was you you touched down? Higher destiny, that's all I can say. <laughs> you had to believe that uh, you had a guardian angel on each shoulder. Well, you clearly did, Lucky. I mean, amazing. So you, you got there, you got to Scotland. And, and were you getting a little bit more respect from the rest of the crew and the navigator by this point? Yes, things did uh, improve quite measurably. Uh they still didn't give up, but uh, because they, they thought I was um, a weak sister, I guess. But uh, gradually through, I stayed with that crew for uh, 21 missions. Did you really? And they ended up doing the, the pilot was determined that he was going to do the fastest tour that anyone had done in the European theater. And sure enough, uh, he ended up being the uh, with with the exception of myself and one uh, other crewman, a gunner, completed 25 missions in 89 days. Hmm. And that was unheard of. Yeah, because that's, that, that's, that's one every four days, isn't it? One every and three so days. So they really. were rotated back to the States, and I still had four missions to fly. Right. So were you then bumped up to full pilot at that point, first pilot by that point? Well, I was checked out as first pilot, but also on my 22nd mission, the uh, crew in front of me contained uh, the operations officer for my squadron, who was second in command of the squadron. And they were rammed by an FW-190 and blew up. And so he was killed. And here I was as a second lieutenant, landed back at the base, and the squadron commander said, well, where is the operations officer? And I said, well, he's not going to return because I saw them explode. And he said, well, then you are the new operations officer. And I said, well, that's going to be pretty awkward, isn't it? I'm just a second lieutenant. And here I'm going to be ordering majors and lieutenant colonels and captains uh, as to when they're going to fly and with whom and all of this. Uh, he said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll give you all the support you need and we'll promote you as rapidly as allowed. Well, in, in the combat zone, you could be elevated one rank every 90 days. And it so happened that I was already in for first lieutenancy. Right. And it was awarded the end of that month. And so um, I, I finally gained a little more respect but, um, uh, and, and rank, 
but I was really operating <laughs> with one hand tied behind my back almost because yeah. uh, I did have senior status as far as combat experience was concerned, but uh, with 22 missions under my belt. But I still didn't have the rank. And um, so he he did have to uh, support me uh, or else that wouldn't have worked. Uh, I'm conscious we've jumped the gun a little bit because um, I, I haven't even asked you what what time of year it was in 1943 that you, you got to England in the first place. I became the operations officer on October the 8th. It was the fall. 1943. Uh, it was my 22nd mission. And uh, first lieutenant, um, November the 1st. And so it was uh, late in 1943 right. that, um, that all of this occurred. But Lucky, when did you first reach England? So that must have been, what, July, August, something like that? We started flying in June. June, you got to, so you got to England Started in June. Started combat in June. You know, and that's, so, yes, so that's when, of course, that's when the 100th Bomb Group gets over there and, and you move into Thorpe Abbotts. I mean, what did you make of, what did you make of England and what did you make of Thorpe Abbotts? I mean, it's a, it's a sleepy little spot in, in Norfolk, isn't it, Thorpe Abbotts? Well, it is. And we had little or any opportunity to get acclimated before we were thrown into combat. We were flying almost every day because our pilot had uh, volunteered us right. uh, to fly because he wanted to finish up. And um, we, were, we were zipping through the uh, uh, requirement to qualify for rotation back to the States as instructors. So it was um, pretty hectic. We were, we were learning the airplane. We were learning formidable capabilities of the Luftwaffe. Yep. We had our hands full and we had to stay focused on our job or else uh, we'd go, uh, uh, we'd end up in the flock house. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's obviously the more skilled you are, the more you've, you've developed a kind of sixth sense, the better your chances. I mean, I mean, to a certain extent, there's a, there's a randomness, isn't that uh, whether you're going to get hit or not, or, or whether that, that cannon shell that penetrates hits you or passes through harmlessly, that, that's chance, isn't it? But there are things you can do to give yourself a better chance, do you think? Well, you do everything you can to uh, hopefully give yourself a better chance. But uh, bottom line, it's just sheer luck. Right, okay. As to whether or not you uh, zigged instead of zagging at the right, right. time or um, if, if the mission that you were on or the part of the formation that you were flying in was not attacked as heavily as, uh, as other parts of the formation. Mm. That could vary widely just within one group. But sure. certainly within one formation, a wing formation of three yep. groups. Yep. Uh, sometimes you would go out and uh, it would be a milk run. You wouldn't get any damage or you'd get very little fighter attack. Um, ironically, we did not have any fighter escort. Yeah. No, we you wouldn't have, have done any, start any, off any fighters in, in Europe that could... Uh, that had the range that could carry us to the target. Initially, uh, when we started flying combat, the RAF uh, would escort us 
to the enemy coast and then they'd be out of fuel, so they'd have to return. Yeah. And that meant as soon as we were over enemy territory, we were on our own. We were yep. flying naked. And we were flying at high altitude in unpressurized aircraft that was bitterly cold. I have soon learned that we didn't have just one enemy. We had four. Right. And it all started with F. The first was fear yep. because we were scared to death of what we were going to be encountering against the Luftwaffe, who was so experienced. They were professionals. They'd been fighting for four years. Yep. And here we were just citizen soldiers, Johnny-come-latelys, and we were in their backyard. They had their backs against the wall, and they were fighting for their homeland. We were 6,000 miles away. The second was the flak. The anti-aircraft defenses were devastating. They thought by flying at high altitude and broad daylight that uh, their flak couldn't reach us. It could not only reach us, but it could go well beyond us. Yep. And so we were losing as many aircraft from, from flak and defenses as we were from fighters. And of course, the fighters were very, very formidable. They had been uh, uh, experienced in the East flying against the Russians. They had fought the Battle of Britain against in the West uh, against the British. And they knew what they were doing. And they quickly developed techniques that were very, very devastating to our formations. And this is basically to fly straight at you, wasn't it? That, you know, fly yes, over the, they, were, they were, they were flying uh, uh, head on. Uh, in line abreast, and uh, they, they were very, very effective. And, of course, the last but not the least was the freezing. Yeah. The temperatures at high altitude, even in the summertime, were just absolutely debilitating. 50 degrees below zero. Yeah, and you've got to and, try and fly uh, this thing. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Being, being, you, you can't imagine how that impacted your ability to perform. Wow. And it, it, all of us... And it was such an alien environment that uh, uh, we had very great difficulty coping with it. Yeah, and there's only so many sheepskin leather jackets you can put on, isn't there? I mean, and you've got to control it, the plane. It, it, it didn't really keep us warm. <laughs> yeah. And we had, heated, we had heated underwear, too, that plugged into the electrical system if it didn't short out. Which it often did, didn't it? I mean, Which often it often shorter. did. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, it, I mean, you talk about the fear. A lot of people that I've spoken to say, you know, the fear comes while you're waiting, you know, the, the before the mission. And then once you get airborne, you're so busy that you don't have time for that. I mean, was that your experience? Because I, I can only imagine what it must be like myself. But if I was flying, if I was at the pilot's controls in a B-17 and I've got a Fokker Wolf coming straight towards me and his wings are kind of, you know, winking fire and cannon shells are hurtling towards me, I think I'd be pretty scared. Indeed you were. And um, it, it is true that, that your fear uh, is sort of uh, subjugated by your attention to flying formation and trying to keep the airplane functioning. And things happen extremely rapidly in combat. 
uh, and consciousness and your action and reaction to what is happening to you and staying focused on what you're really trying to do. And that's get the, uh, the, the bombs on the target. But the fallacy of the strategy of going out in broad daylight, five miles above the ground in bitter cold and dropping a free-falling object on a target, despite the fact that we supposedly had a secret weapon in the Norden bomb site. That was a total fallacy. The bomb assessment damage of, of uh, the 8th Air Force uh, in the final analysis was, we didn't come within nine miles of the target less than 25% of the time. So that meant we had to go back again and again to the same target and face the same an increased uh, resistance. And uh, <laughs> how futile was that? Well, it, it, is, it, is a, it is something of a miracle that you and I are, are, are talking today because obviously you arrived into the 8th Air Force at exactly the moment of its greatest danger because obviously the 8th Air Force had come into being in England the previous summer, but then most of the planes had then been sent to the Mediterranean and to North Africa. The 8th Air Force, the second half of 1942 and the first part of 1942, was obviously operating just as, as pretty much um, almost a skeleton force. By the time the 100th Bomb Group comes over, you know, you're, you're a you know, really good day, maybe maybe 200 plus aircraft, but 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 usually it's less than that um, that it can put out. And it's, it's a time of, of experimentation. And there's been this whole theorizing by the bomber men in the 1930s about how bombing would be conducted and 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 this idea that you'd do it in daylight in a in a in a large formation where you're mutually supporting and you've got these 13 machine guns and together that would that would be a, be enough and you arrive slap bang in the middle of a time where that theory the shortcomings are becoming increasingly apparent and obviously, you're 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 getting out there just before the first Schweinfurt and Regensburg raid. I mean, we were you in that particular raid, the first Schweinfurt? Yes, yes. And that oh. must have been a, a terrible day. Well, uh, it was, depending upon where you were in the formation and what your particular experience uh, 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 on that raid uh, was it could vary all the way from a milk run to uh, the worst right and you never knew yeah and if you wallowed in self-pity about what how slim your chances were of survival uh, you'd go nuts sure. and uh, that was one of the things the operations officer had to gauge was whether or not each member of each crew in his squadron was still maintaining their equilibrium enough under under battle conditions to perform. Because once you get shot down or you leave the formation, you're a dead duck. Yep. Uh, but there are no funerals. There are no memorials. You don't worry about <clears throat> who's gone down. They're just gone. They're just empty bunks that have to be filled, refilled with replacements. And that incidentally turned out to be one of the greatest miscalculations that, that Hitler was guilty of. 
he was determined or was convinced that we could not replace our losses and that daylight bombing would be suicidal. And Sir Arthur Harris uh, certainly agreed with him. They had, the British had tried daylight bombing and had been cut to ribbons. And as a result, he was convinced that the only way we could bring the Nazis to their knees was nighttime bombing. And so that debate, of course, was never uh, made known to us as air crew. Sure. We were just told to go out and fly. Right. And to keep flying and to keep hitting the target. Now, the debate between the British and the Americans over whether daylight or, or nighttime bombing was the best utilization of the bomber force was ongoing throughout the war. Personally, I feel that our command was remiss in not at least giving nighttime bombing a fair trial. Huh. I'm not saying that it would have been superior. I'm not saying that, that uh, uh, they were right, but they would, were so stubborn that they refused to even give it a fair trial. And if it didn't work, they could always go back the night to daytime bombing. Yeah, sure. So it was really um, uh, ego on their part that said, well, our strategy is superior. Yeah, I mean, there were other things at play, weren't there, such as as wanting to become an independent air force and wanting to do their own thing and not being perceived to be in the shadow of, of RAF Bomber Command and so on but but you're right you're 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 those the backdrop of that is young men's lives and 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 young men like yourself i mean just very briefly lucky to go back to to schweinfurt so on that that august raid were you on that day were you just happened to be in the right position i mean is that how you got through it exactly no other explanation and i i mean can you remember seeing planes sort of dropping like flies? Oh, of course. Of course you did. And uh, that memory doesn't leave you very quickly. And, of course, it takes a toll. Yeah, of course. As you do it more and more, and you see more and more planes going down, and you say, well, why them and not me? And yeah. when is the, the bullet going to have my name on it? Right. And if you really concentrated on that or allowed yourself to worry about that sort of thing um it was very detrimental and you wouldn't uh, you you wouldn't be able to continue so you had to develop everybody had their own demons of course and you had to develop your own strategy and your own superstition hmm. <laughs> uh, of uh, what you needed to do to survive yeah yeah and that's Amazing. why the name of the book is Damn Lucky, because uh, <laughs> yes. the bottom line is that it's purely and simply a roll of the dice. Yeah. And I was a fortunate one that, uh, uh, that survived. At 101, you have to believe that you, <laughs> you were destined to, to, for some reason to be spared. Yeah, of course. And you never know why. Yeah, of course. Of course. Did you develop a, a technique? Did you just think every time the demons entered your brain, did you kind of have a have a, a way to push them to one side? Or, or 
how did you keep going? Because not everyone did. Jim, I get asked, I get asked uh, frequently how after seeing your buddies go down and, and uh, suffering losses on your own crew and that sort of thing, you psych yourself up to get back in that airplane the next day and go again. And truthfully, I don't know. <laughs> I look back on it and I think, my God, how in the world could anybody, seeing and knowing what you do now, having been introduced to the, the baptism of fire in combat, continue to go out and do it? Yeah. And you, you don't really understand or know uh, in their human psyche, psyche or I didn't yep. at any rate anything else to do but stay focused on what you were there to do and that was to get the bombs on the target of course do your darndest to get the bombs on the target yeah because if you didn't you're going to have to keep going back until you did but but even if you're doing a rapid tour um as you were when you first got out to to England your first 21 missions there's still gaps in between. There's still time off. There's, there's, there's plenty of hours in the day where you're not actually flying. I mean, how did you, presumably, I mean, you were, you, were you making friends on the, on, on the bomb group and, 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 and on the squadron? And what did you do in your downtime? Well, actually, uh, <clears throat> in my own case, I was uh, fortunate to be uh, to have the responsibility of being the operations officer, and I didn't have any free time. Right, but before that, before I, that, I didn't go to. I never went to the rest home. I never took a leave. Well, I got to London once, right. and um, for the most part, I was just staying so focused and so occupied that when I finally finished my missions, and they sent me back to the states. I didn't fly for four months, and I nearly went nuts huh. because I said, for God's sake, give me an assignment. I've, I'm, I've been so focused on, on, on being busy and doing something, but I'm not contributing. I'm not doing anything. Right. As a consequence, I ended up in the Flack House in St. Petersburg, and they said, well, uh, why, why are you here? Of course, some guys hit the bottle. Uh, some guys committed suicide. Some guys uh, uh, couldn't be rehabilitated, and they had to be sent to the infantry or, or cashiered. So it varied widely. But the impact and the effect of being under those uh, that kind of duress 24-7, well, it's going to be a killer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I Honestly, I, I'm in total awe of of what you did. And I just don't know how you got through it, but, but so, so lucky you, you, you took over as operations officer after your 22nd mission. And that was, you were saying in, in October, 1943, how, how, how much longer were you out at with the hundredth bomb group? How much longer did you have to go? Well, I had four more missions to fly and, um, uh, I did not complete my, uh, my tour until, mid-February of 44. Black Week was the October. week that uh, I flew my 21st, uh, uh, 22nd mission 
and uh, I only flew one mission out of out of those. But uh, on October the eighth, we went to Bremen. Yes, and I brought home what was left of the group, which was six ships. Oh my goodness! Out of yes. eighteen. Yeah. Uh, the next day, we went to Marienburg, and uh, we didn't have any losses. The following day, we went to Munster on the 10th. Yep. And we, out of 13 airplanes that we put up, we only got one back. Amazing. And then on August the, on October the 14th. Back to Schweinfurt. We went to uh, Schweinfurt again. I forgot our, our losses then, but that constituted the Black Week. Yeah. And I'll be coming back to England in this October to commemorate the 80th anniversary of that week. How wonderful. How wonderful. Vastly different when we, when we were there. Well, of course, because these yeah. these bases were, were little cities, weren't they? Little towns of suddenly there's sort of three and a half thousand Americans all, all, all descending on these little villages in Norfolk. I mean, did you exactly. ever get to the pub or anything like that? Well, uh, rare occasions, I'd get there briefly, but um, uh, mostly uh, any kind of celebrating I did, I had to do at the officers' club right on the base. And your difficulties with with your, your with your crew, Lucky. I mean, did relationships improve? Did you make friends with any of them? Not really. Uh, I was closer, perhaps, to some of the uh, enlisted crew than I ever was to the officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never saw my pilot again, or either the navigator or the bombardier. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, the navigator, um, when he returned to the States, he was checked out on B-29s and um, was flying with a friend of his, and they flew into a mountain in Montana, oh. and uh, <clears throat> he was killed. So, um, but... Uh, in any of the reunions that uh, I didn't go to reunions initially, and I didn't even talk about my wartime experiences for 50 years. Did you not? It wasn't something I wanted to remember. It wasn't something that was pleasant. Uh, it was uh, a closed chapter as far as my book, I was concerned. And it wasn't until 1999 when I was invited to be a, a luncheon speaker at a uh, an air symposium at the University of North Texas that um, I started uh, uh, reflecting uh, on my uh, combat experience and uh, gradually realized that I had an obligation to share it with younger generations so that they wouldn't forget what sacrifices really had been made uh, for the freedom that they enjoy today. Wow, good for you. I mean, w- w- when you when you came back to the U.S., so that was presumably end of February, beginning of March, something like that, 1944? That was when you were back in the yes. U.S.? Then you had this yes. difficult time where you weren't flying and, 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 and struggling a bit. I mean, how did, you, how did you spend the rest of the war? Well, ironically, uh, one of the things they did when they finally did put me to work was to send me to the instrument pilot school 
in Bryan, Texas, to learn how to fly instruments. Right. It's a night and I flying, said, my God, I needed that before I went to combat, <laughs> not after. <laughs> and I was in the first class of returnees that, to go through that. That was the only instrument school they had. And uh, uh, I happened to have a fraternity brother who was an instructor there. And um, uh, as it turned out, I was I was pretty bitter about that experience. But um, as it turned out, it was one of my luckiest days because that's where I met my future wife, oh. who uh, I was with for seventy one years. Amazing. So where so where were you in in the summer of nineteen forty five when when the the global war was finally over? Well, I was in Miami. I was in uh, Tampa, Florida, huh. at McDill Field. Yep. And by that time, I had been transitioned to B-29s and uh, was about to be shipped to the Pacific to fight another war. Right. When, when uh, the atom bomb had been dropped in August and, and ended World War II. And that was that. You know, so you didn't have to go. You were saved a second tour. You must have been a relieved man. It was indeed. Oh. Because I'm now a raging pacifist, I think war is totally futile and and stupid. Well, it doesn't they, prove anything, and no. nobody learns from it. Well, I'm afraid to say you're you're absolutely right, um, and and it's it's horrible seeing what's happening, isn't it, in Ukraine, for example, and and the same old things and the same old scenes, and some of the photographs you see of Ukraine, you know, it could be. I don't know, you know, a scene from Normandy or Italy or, you know, any of these places really or the Eastern Front exactly. in, the, in the Second World War. I mean, it's it's just extraordinary, you know. If, it's if you, a sad commentary that the human condition can't reconcile their differences uh, without resorting to mil military conflict. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and after the war, I mean, how long did you stay in the in, in the – in the U.S. Army Air Force until, until you were out? Well, after the war, uh, they offered me a regular commission because the Air Force became a separate branch. Yes. Uh, in uh, 1947, and I accepted that, and then they uh, informed me that I could go back to college and get my degree with a uh, still on flying status, mm -hmm. uh, and... So I applied to Stanford and was accepted, but I never got any orders. Right. And I finally flew down to the Air University that was administering the program and asked them why. And they said, well, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm only 26. And they said, well, you know, we have an age limit of 32 in this program. And I said, yeah, so what? And they said, well, so we've got so many ahead of you that if they don't get in, they lose out. And I said, well, I understand that and so much for them, but when am I, how, how long am I going to have to wait to get in the pipeline? And they said, well, according to our calculations, just before your 32nd birthday. <laughs> so I said, oh, my, you mean I've got to wait another six years? I've been out of college for six years now, and that would be 12 years before I got back to the books. And I flew back to um, 8th Air Force Headquarters uh, in uh, Fort Worth, where I was stationed at the time, and 
realized that I could go back to school uh, currently under the GI Bill as a civilian. Yep. So I resigned my commission then and ultimately went back to college. I didn't go to Stanford. I went to the University of Denver. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <clears throat> Not studying and, chemical engineering. And, and uh, yes, I took business and pre-law. Right. That seems more sensible. chemical engineering. <laughs> but then I ended up uh, in the uh, real estate development business, developing mall-type shopping centers. Right. And that's what I did as my uh, profession for until about 1986 when I finally retired. Amazing, and you and and children had family. I uh, only have one. I have a daughter who is married to a pediatric neurosurgeon. Wow! Uh, and uh, two grandchildren and four great grandchildren. Amazing. Well, it's quite a life you've had, Lucky. Uh, and I mean, you you said that you didn't want to talk about it until 1999 when you got invited to make this address, and you feel it's a sense of duty. I mean, I mean, I feel incredibly touched that you've you've taken the time to talk to me today. I, I hope it hasn't hasn't been too painful for you. I, I feel awful making you go through this again. Well, I'm happy to do it at any time, and um, it's uh, it's a privilege to. Um, to meet you and talk with you because I know of your reputation as a, an author and a, an authority really on World War II. You've, you've really studied it more minutely than, uh, uh, than most people, and, uh, and I respect that. Uh, and so it's, it's a privilege to uh, meet with you and talk with you and share experiences. Well, I can assure you, Lucky, that the, the, the privilege and the honor is, is all mine. <laughs> uh, but but I, I can't thank you enough for, for, for talking to us today. I mean, it's, I, I know that every single one of our listeners is just going to be absolutely spellbound. It's, it's, it's amazing talking to you. And Well, I'm just extremely fortunate, and thank God that I'm still here. Yeah, well, I, you know, and it's amazing. You obviously still enjoy life, and, and, and you embrace... The modern world we live in, I mean, it's impressive how quick you are on email and all these sort of things, and you've, you've managed your own tech at the other end of this conversation. So, um, you know, I mean, hats off to you, Lucky, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Well, everyone who's been listening to that, I mean, what, what a treat. What, what, an amazing, what an amazing man. And um, thank you all for listening. Thank you very much to John Lucky Luckadoo. 101 years young. Lucky, we all feel very lucky to have heard your story. No pun intended. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Jim. Cheerio for now. Thank you so much. God bless.